are listening to Los Altos Institute's Dune course, taught by Liesl Westfall. Some participants may have requested anonymization for their part in the course, so if you find names or questions missing in the recording, that's why. Sorry if it sounds a bit choppy. I can go ahead and introduce myself. Um, my name is uh, Liesl Westfall. Um, I, uh, I came to this course uh, via Stuart. Um, we were, were mutuals on Twitter and he, he made some tweet about, uh, about science fiction or eugenics or something like that. And I made a, a, an offhand remark that I said, oh, I'll teach a Doom course if you want. And well, here we are. Can everyone? Okay. Well, I can introduce myself to you and the one other person here. Uh, but I feel I may have to repeat this. Uh, I'm Jonathan Sheps. I'm a member, uh, I'm on the board of the Los Altos Institute, uh, which is what happens if you spend even more time hanging around Stuart, apparently. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I mean, I'm a fan of, I've been a fan of Dune since before the movie, even. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, a qualified fan of Dune. Um, but I like, I mean, I didn't read the whole series. It, it, the diminishing returns, I feel, sort of kick in pretty strongly as yeah. you go through. So, I tend to advise people to read the first book right. and just stop there because. The sequels are not rewarding unless you're, I think, very interested in the backstory. And I assume you are. Yes. And it matters for the, yeah. for the you know, understanding where it's going and the construction of it and so on. Right. Um, I suppose we could have a, a conversation at some point about sort of the, that literary criticism aspect of Dune, which is, I realize, not what this course is even for. But. <laughs> We will be talking about some of that. I'm not going to go into too in-depth of an analysis on that, just simply because I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that not everyone here has read all six books. And like me, five or six times each, so. Um, yeah, no, I, I read, I guess, four of the books once. Yep. Back in the early 80s and have not revisited them. Oh, so I have probably forgotten everything, basically, and and I'm at this point just running on a an, a slightly less vague memory of the movie. But anyways, right. well, we will talk about the movie and uh, what they got right, what they got wrong. Um, yeah, I mean, but we'll, I will talk about that later on. Hello, hi, my computer, my computer messed up on me. That's okay. That's okay. This is our first. This is our first go. So, I've got someone else trying to come back in. Yeah, this is our first go. So I kind of expected this to not really start on time. You know, that's kind of what happens in like the first class of any kind of any kind of course. I'm Alex Bitzer, and I started reading the Dune books last year, and I started on. The original Dune book and read them straight through the six originals and then the two that Brian did at the end of the series and then I've 
started reading from the beginning yep. of the whole series. Yep. So you've uh, read you've read the entire six books. Yes. And you read them recently. Last year. Yep. Yeah. That's in in the course of the Dune universe. So that that is pretty recent, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've been reading the other the other back ones too, because I started back at the the very first book for or you know the beginning of the whole thing, and then I'm up to House Carino now. So you're reading the uh, Brian Herbert. Yeah, I've been reading yeah. those in order too. Kevin J. Anderson books. Yeah, I I started to read them just simply because I was dead curious as to um, where they were going to go. Yeah. But then when he started talking about like the Butler and Jihad and the Serena Butler and like some kind of artificial intelligence machine throwing the, her baby off of a off of a, a cliff or something, I just went. Yeah. I'm out of here. This is another the butlering jihad has nothing to do with that. <laughs> You're making creative license. <laughs> I'm a kind of a canon person, so yeah. if Frank didn't write it, uh, yeah. and if he didn't okay it, um, yeah, I don't consider it canon. I consider it like apocrypha, right? Yeah, yeah. I almost quit, but I decided just something to read through the virus and everything, so it was good. Yeah. I actually just reread the entire series in the last two months, um, all 2,000 pages of them. And, uh, you know, you get something new from it every time you read it. You know, mm -hmm. the first time I read it was um, back when I was, uh, I, I read the initial book in high school. And then I read it in university. I read it again when I was in my 20s. Didn't touch it for 10 years. And I've reread it again now. And I get so much more from it. Well, may I speak? Yeah. I read, I had never read Dune. I'd heard a whole lot about it. But science fiction was never really my thing. But I had a friend who said I would love it. And I do. I read the first book. Mm -hmm. And to be honest with you, all the names he inserted in kind of puzzled me. Like I got the point of the first book. But all those, you know, this this area is called whatever, that area is called whatever. I had trouble with that. But yeah. the, the story is going to be fantastic. So you've just read the first book then? I just read it. But as I say, I missed all the special names he called everything. So are you talking about names for like landmarks? Yeah, like your Quitsat's Hard Darish. Now what in heaven's name does that mean? The uh, Quizat Tadak. Oh, it's okay. Actually, it's um uh the Quizat Tadak is uh it's a per is the per is the um the person that sees all. The man that sees all. It's oh. a it's a term that was borrowed from Hebrew. Uh, Frank Herbert borrowed a lot of, uh, he, he was a big language f fanatic, and he borrowed a lot of terminology from uh, from uh, the Hebraic tradition, from the Arabic Islamic tradition, but we'll, we'll talk about that too. So, yeah. It's not a literal <laughs> translation of the Hebrew, though. Yeah, it's not a literal translation. It's like, um, it's like the, the term, the Lizan al-Gib, which is the voice from the, which, which in the movie, they call it the voice from the outer world. But a literal translation of it is uh, the tongue that comes from 
like the essence of God. So there's there's not literally translated, but no, I did talk about this with a friend who's a much bigger Dune fan than I am. Yeah, and and he worked out that it was Kefitzat Haderach originally. Oh, because that's Haderach was Kefitzat Haderach. Haderach is the path. Kefitzat is a shortening, a contraction. And he says that, so what he, what he said was, in the Bible, this refers essentially to teleportation. Oh, God is moving someone from one place to another. Right, okay. With, with, with implausible speed, it is kefitzat haderech. The path was shortened. So okay. what we would call folding space. Right, right. So he is, or um, how Frank Herbert sees, he sees time and space as being... Um, uh, like uh, like a synchronicity between time and space, and so right, it's that shortening of the way, so the shortening of like like time travel and of space, kind of the same thing. Yeah, teleportation, time travel, yeah. prophecy—they're all fun in an Einsteinian universe. These things all should be the same. That's right. That that comes exactly the relativity. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it's five forty-two. So I'm going to go ahead and start. Um, we've had a pretty good chat about introductions. Um, I'll talk a bit briefly more about myself, but I just want to review, I want to review, um, the outline of what we're going to be talking about. So today I'm going to do, we're going to do, we've done our introductions. I'll do a quick introduction of myself. Um, uh, there's a brief biography of Frank Herbert which um, I always think is really important to talk about the writer so that we can situate him within his, both his historical context and also his, his cultural context. Um, I'll do a brief, just talk, I'll just do a quick talk about uh, a brief history of science fiction. Um, I'm gonna keep it to 20th century science fiction. Um, so uh, Stuart's got the, the Mary Shelley, he can talk about uh, 19th century, what they call proto science fiction. Um, then I'm going to look at uh, the themes in uh, in Dune and uh, what influences some of the major influences in uh, Frank's. One could say academic career, but he was more of an autodidact. He was very self. He was very self-taught. He never got a degree. Um, so we'll look at some of his influences, what influenced him. And you can definitely see it in the book for sure. And then finally, we will round it off with a talk about Dune adaptations and inspiration. So uh, derivations of Dune, movies and TV shows. And, and well, in my opinion, the, the, uh, the Sun's books, I consider those fan fiction because they're not canon. Um, then next week, I will be doing a synopsis of the original book, Dune. Um, I'm going to do that, setting the context. So any, uh, I'll be talking about, um, I'll be talking about the, the Imperium. So like the planetary system, the political system, the various uh, players within the political system, uh, about planet ecologies, that kind of stuff, kind of just to set the scene and then we'll do a synopsis. And if I have any time after that, we will talk about the themes that have started to emerge, like the stuff we're gonna talk about today. Though so I suspect that that class actually may be just recovering Dune because Dune is such a huge, such a huge massive book um, with a lot of 
what I like to call the priors, the priors of the Dune universe. So what you have to understand going into the Dune universe, like this is the way things are. Then on May 13th, um, Stuart will be talking about Frank Herbert and the social science sciences. Um, May 18th, I'll be doing, I'll be doing the same treatment that I did for the first book for Dune Messiah. And I think we might have some time to talk about the stuff that may, got that may have gotten left over uh, on May 11th when we do the initial book. Uh, May 20th is Children of Dune. Um, again, we might have a bit of leftover time to talk about the themes that have emerged. Um, one of the things you have to keep in mind when Frank wrote Dune was that he really did, when he went into it, he envisioned it as a trilogy. So before he finished completely writing the first book, well, he wrote it and I'll talk about this later. He actually had parts of Dune Messiah and Children of Dune written before he finished, um, before he published the first book. So it really needs to be seen as a trilogy because the themes and the motifs that develop in Dune, they really come out in the second and the third book. So um, May 25th is Mountain People and Desert People. So that's where, that's Stuart. And he's going to be talking about the ecology of Dune and how that affects uh, the people that interact with it. May 27th uh, is God Emperor of Dune. We do the same treatment that I did to uh, the first three books. Um, June 1st is Heretics of Dune. Uh, again, same treatment. June 3rd is the legacy of Shelley's Frankenstein, Parthogenesis. That's going to be very interesting. That is, that, that's Stuart. That's, uh, that's something that Stuart's going to be doing. June 8th is the wrap up with Chapter House Dune. That's the final book that Frank wrote. And um, there are a lot of unfinished ideas in that because he died suddenly. Um, and we can talk about those unfinished ideas because, you know, his son did, his son did write, pre, like, he did write books to try to um, finish that story. But for me, like, because for me, science fiction is all about imagination. I love the fact that it does have this open end so that it, it really can go anywhere. So that's Chapter House Dune. And then June 10th, um, my new friend, Kara Kennedy will be joining us all the way from Auckland, New Zealand where she will talk about uh, West versus East, politics and culture in Dune. And hopefully she might come in and sit in on another one because Kara is, Kara has her PhD in English and she, she really, um, uh, she, she did her, her PhD, she did her dissertation on uh, women in Dune, which is one of the reasons why I love this series is because of the way that it portrays women. Maybe not necessarily right, well, yeah, right away. But, you know, eventually the series ends where it's based, it's just all these really awesomely developed three-dimensional characters who are female, <clears throat> who you don't see a lot of in science fiction. Well, you might, you might see more of them now, but you didn't see a lot of them in classic science fiction. And then our last week is sort of the, let's talk about the, crazy themes in Dune. So we've got June 15th as Bene Gesserit's to honor Matries, uh, gender, sex, and women in Dune. I am very much looking forward to this because 
I've always been very attracted to the relationship of the Bene Gesserit to the honor matries and how this may reflect different waves of feminism. So, and then our last one is eugenics, genetic engineering and controlled breeding. Um, the rise of the transhuman. This is where uh, we explore themes in Dune and how they may relate to uh, current things going on, current technologies going on right now, current biotechnologies, which I think is very, very topical. It's a, it's, you know, brings up lots of philosophy and uh, moral questions. So that is our, that is our schedule, our upcoming schedule. So let's get this started. So I reviewed and everyone has introduced themselves. Okay, so just to lay down some parameters, um, like, I, I, like I said before, I'm not sure if everyone, um, if everyone was in, but um, I'm gonna be dealing with just the six books. So any kind of ephemera knowledge or details that are outside of the books. And this includes the Dune Encyclopedia because Frank Herbert said it was very imaginative, but he didn't sign off it sign off on it. He, he saw it, he essentially saw it as fan fiction. Um, so I'm just limiting myself to the six books. Um, if you guys want to talk about uh, the other um, uh, derivations of it. So like uh, the Brian Herbert stuff, if we have time, for sure. But for, for me, in terms of the content that I'm going to be talking about, it's just the six books. So on we go. So uh, I had to take a lot of notes for this because we're going to be covering stuff. So if I seem like I'm just reading off of a piece of paper, I, I kind of am in the very beginning. So please bear with me. Um, so Frank Herbert, he was born in 1920 in a small logging town in the Northwest US, Washington State. Uh, by the age of eight, he knew that he wanted to become a writer when he grew up. Uh, during, during his youth, he, um, because he lived during the depression, uh, his parents had to go away for, his father had to go away for work and um, he was left in the care of uh, a group of his great aunts who were uh, Catholic. So a lot of this informs this, 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 these Catholic women. They inform the Bene Gesserit really later on, but we'll talk about that. Um, graduated from high school at the age of 19, and then he lies about his age and he lands his first newspaper job. In 1940, at the tender age of 20, he gets married for the first time to uh, Flora Parkinson, and they have a daughter. So this marriage doesn't last very long, and it, it kind of goes south from the start, and he registers for the draft, um, becoming a photographer for the Navy, but he's medically discharged about six months later uh, due to injury. He gets divorced from Flora in 1945, and Frank moves back to the Northwest to attend University of Washington. And it's at the University of Washington where he will meet his future wife and life partner, Beverly, in a, career, in a creative writing class in 1946. Now, I focus, I do, I do talk about Beverly a bit because um, if you read 
And if you listen to a lot of his interviews or if you read, he, he wrote, not sure if anyone has read this, it's called the, the Maker of Doom. This is a lot of his interviews put together. This is a very hard book to get a hold of. Um, his wife had a lot of influence on his life. And there are some scholars who, who believe that his wife probably did more than just edit his work. And in fact, that she helped uh, develop a lot of his ideas. Um, and she wasn't just a sounding board. Uh, anyways, so I will talk about Beverly. So they meet in this writing class and they get married, like almost right away, it's, it's pure love. And within a year, they have their first son and their first son is Brian. So this is the Brian Herbert, who is the author of these continuing Dune books. Um, now, Frank was not much of a student while he was at UW. He, he only enrolled in courses that interested him. So he never actually graduated. So he returned to journalism. Um, in 1959, he began full-time research on Dune. Um, Beverly was working at, in the marketing field at the time. So she was working full-time. So this allowed for him to, to stay home and, 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 and devote his full-time to, to, to his research. So uh, <clears throat> Dune actually wasn't published as a book to start off with. At the time, um, publishing science fiction books was, it was very niche and the subject matter had to be at the time very marketable because it was so niche. So what he did was he published them in, um, uh, he published them at like in a, in a serialized form. So uh, the first, the first the initial Dune story was published in Analog, which was a science fiction magazine uh, edited by John Campbell, who is considered to be one of the, the grandfathers of science fiction because he was an he, he wasn't a he wasn't a writer, but he was an editor who um, was involved with and who promoted a lot of uh, the classic science fiction writers today. Um, so that was analog. So that started in 1963. The first serialization uh, was called Dune World. It consisted of three parts um, and they were published between 1963 and 1964. Um, later, there was a second serialization, which was called uh, The Prophet of Dune. And it was published in five parts um, all throughout 1965. So these eight installments altogether form the entirety of the first Dune book. And um, uh, to put it together as a book, Frank Herbert decided to rewrite the entire thing. Um, he then went shopping, actually Beverly put together a marketing package uh, to try to shop this novel to actual publishers, like the full novel, not just the serials. And it was rejected by at least 20 publishers until a very small non-science fiction publisher, Chilton Books Company, um, agreed to publish his novel. So um, upon publication, it was considered a critical success, 
not necessarily a market success, didn't make a lot of money right away, but the critics loved it. And because of that, it won the Nebula Award in 1965 and a Hugo in 1966. So even though he wasn't making a lot of money off this novel, um, it was a critical success. So what it did was it raised Frank's profile and even though he was still a science fiction author, he couldn't make enough money off of it. So he worked as both a journalist and an education writer. Um, and the novel also opened up the ability for him to work as a university lecturer at the exact same university which he had dropped out of years before. So UW, which I think is, is amazing because you can't teach at university now unless you have a PhD and multiple years of postgraduate um, studies and work, that kind of thing. Um, so during the time that he was, uh, he was working in these various areas, he started to write um, the second novel of the series, Dune Messiah, which again was also published um, as a serialization uh, in four parts over the year of 1969. Now, instead of being published in analog, he had to publish it in Galaxy. And uh, the reason why he couldn't publish it in the initial magazine, the analog magazine, which was edited by John Campbell, was because John Campbell, he was very much this like, like, uh, uh, you know, the space opera, superhuman, the hero's journey kind of guy, the classic science fiction. And when he read Children of Dune, he hated it. He loved Dune. He loved Dune because it met all of his requirements for what he thought was great science fiction. And then he read Dune Messiah and said, what have you done to the story? So he refused to publish it. Galaxy Magazine published the serialization. And then finally the whole book was published. The, the, the entire um, story was published as a single novel um, in the same year. Uh, so, now we, we fast forward to 1974, so this is five years later, and uh, life kind of takes a bit of a turn for the worse. Uh, Beverly's diagnosed with cancer and she will receive a medical radiological treatment from this cancer and she'll never fully recover from this. Um, Frank, is, Frank becomes her primary and in the end, her sole caregiver over the next 10 years. So, so now we're working with, you know, we're working, where, where, where are we now? Now we're in 1976 and the third novel of the series, Children of Doom, is again published as a four-part serialization, but it's back in analog again. And not because uh, Campbell uh, liked it, but because it was so popular. It made, him, it made money. It was, it, it, it was, it was well-known. So it went, it, he went back to analog and published there. Now the final three books of the series, they were all published solely as novels. So he didn't have to do the serialization route. Um, that was God Emperor of Dune in 1981, Heretics of Dune in 1984. Uh, that's the year his wife dies. And then Chapter House Dune in 1985. Uh, Frank 
dies in 1986 of a massive embolism, massive pulmonary embolism. And that's the end of the, that's the end of the story for, for Mr. Herbert. Does anyone have any questions? No? Okay. Um, well, that explains why I didn't read books five and six. They didn't actually exist when I was interested in the series. When I, when I read it the first time, there were four books in the series and I read them. Yep. <laughs> and, and then I stopped sort of paying attention. Right, yeah. Well, um, the, the last two books, they almost feel like they've been written by a different person, which also lends a little bit of credence to my theory. Maybe they were, maybe they were, maybe they were kind of co-written, but anyways. So, uh, so let's talk about, so what is science fiction? So I think everyone, 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 everyone here is signed up. We, we know what science fiction is or else we probably wouldn't have signed up for the course. Um, there have been many attempts to define science fiction. Uh, science fiction kind of defies um, uh, a linear um, attempt to be able to define it. It really does. There's like a multitude of definitions and most of them are reflective of the different subgenres that science fiction has come to encompass. So you'll see different people who write different types of science fiction give you a different definition of science fiction. For example, um, Samuel R. Delaney uh, said that science fiction is the only area of literature outside of poetry that is symbolistic in its basic conception. Its stated aim is to represent the world without reproducing it. And Ray Bradbury in 1974, for above all science fiction, as far back as Plato trying to figure out a proper society has out it has always been a fable teacher of morality. There's no larger problem in the world that is not a science fictional problem. Science fiction is interested in more than science, more than machines. So then we get into this concept of hard science fiction versus soft science fiction. So it's either categorized as soft science fiction or hard science fiction. And the popularity of either or is kind of uh, waxed and waned or in the last 120 years. Um, hard science fiction uh, normally refers to uh, 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 the, the science fictions that are analogous. Sorry. Um, it, it refers to science fictions that uh, uh, deal with natural sciences. So math and chemistry and physics, while soft science fiction is analogous to the social sciences. So like sociology, psychology and such. Um, boundaries between the two, they're, they, they're, not, really, they're not really clear. Um, some writers borrow from both and uh, many stories and authors, they, they bridge between the two um, genres. So Dune is considered soft science fiction because uh, when it brings up, you know, things like like technologies, uh, like um, like the spacing guild, we don't actually learn about um, how 
uh, we don't actually learn about the mechanisms of how the spacing guild, uh, you know, some people say it's faster than light travel, but we don't learn about um, these, these mechanisms. Uh, faster than light travel is actually usually um, found in soft science fiction because it's one of those, it's not, it's not detailed. It's just one of those, okay. So for, for intergalactic travel, we use faster than light travel, and that's it. It's just one of those priors that you just accept and you move on in through the story. So a little bit of a history um, of science fiction. So talking about the world that Frank Herbert was writing into. Um, so the so things, themes and subject matter that we would classify as science fiction. Um, they go back in Western and non-Western writings for centuries. Uh, early science fiction, um, so proto-science fiction, uh, has a lot of elements that we associate with modern, so 20th century science fiction. Um, and, but they also tend to overlap with, uh, so 19th century, um, what we call proto-science fiction, overlaps with other genres like the Gothic novel and the Romantic movement. And, like so Brian Aldiss, he's one of Herbert's favorite authors, um, proclaimed Mary Shelley's Frankensteins, published in 1818, to be the first seminal work to which the label science fiction can be logically attached. But for the sake of, uh, this isn't a history lesson in, in science fiction, and for the sake of time, um, I'm just going to limit myself to talking about 20th century um, science fiction. So the beginning of the 20th century saw the emergence of uh, these uh, popular fiction magazines geared towards, so this is the 20th century and the pulp era. That's, that's, that's what, the beginning is called the pulp era. So we see the emergence of popular fiction magazines geared towards attracting a wider readership. Uh, these publications are colloquially termed as pulps and that refers to the cheap wood pulp paper on which the magazines were printed. I have some examples. So we've got Edgar Rice Burroughs, nice and pulpy, one of those small little digests, cheap. Um, So pulp magazines just, they weren't just for science fiction. Uh, they covered a wide variety of genres. So adventure, romance, satire, horror. Um, they were also generally considered to be sort of a, uh, an everyday man's book. They were, uh, they were low value in literature and they were mainly a form of escapism. So many, but many of the great names in science fiction, including Herbert, began their publishing careers in pulp. And many of them also often chose to write anonymously or under pseudonym due to the low regard for the pulp medium. So for science fiction, the dawn of the pulp era begins with the establishment of the Amazing Stories magazine. And it grows with, other, with the emergence of other publications such as Astounding Stories in, in Super Science. Uh, I showed you. So the pulp magazine reaches its 
its zenith in the 1920s. In the 1930s. Um, the popularity of the format begins to decline post 1940s. Uh, number one, because there's a scarcity of paper during World War II. Uh, two, because uh, there's a diversification of popular literature models. There's new mass printing technologies. And also very importantly, there's also the widespread adoption of television. So by the end, um, of the, so by the mid fifties, the science fiction pulp publishers, uh, they've moved away from publishing magazines into books and the whole era, the whole pulp era is kind of over by then. Mm. Um, after that, we find ourselves in the, 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 the golden age of science fiction and the golden age of science fiction is sort of this libertarian exaltation of the Superman and as hero and uh, him going forth into different worlds with technology at his hands, right? It's the, it's the beginning of the space opera. So the golden age of science fiction can be broken down into two stages. We've got the early golden age and then we have the later golden age. The early golden age, um, this is a term generally used to refer to the period between the late 1930s up to the time immediately following World War II, so around 1946. This is a time for increasing popularity and market share for science fiction stories because more and more people are getting interested in them. Because more and more people at the time are just getting interested in science. Uh, the later golden age of science fiction is considered to be mainly the 1950s. And this is when we see, this is when we see science fiction tropes that have now come to be regarded as like classics of the genre. So for example, uh, Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics. That's, they start coming out in the 1950s. Um, one of the, the really important uh, first novels that has to deal with ecology in a science fiction genre is Earth Abides. That comes out in 1951. And we also see in the, in the 50s as well, as we see classics and writers developed like Isaac Asimov. So we have foundation. Um, now science fiction becomes, this is the time where science fiction becomes very popular, not just in, in books and in reading, but also in TV. So uh, TV opens up a whole new audience for science fiction. And so we see this in things like Flash Gordon, which was a live action series in the mid fifties and Buck Rogers, 1950 to 1951. It's another live action series. Um, we get some great authors during this time. We got, like I said before, we have Isaac Asimov, uh, Ray Bradbury comes on the scene. And one of my favorites, Dexter Dune, is a Countess Alfred Leibowitz. So we have Walter Miller comes on the scene too. So this really is 
when they call it the golden age, it really is the golden age. So all these big names that most of us associate with science fiction, this is when they start to write. Um, but as we move on, so, so like I said before, the golden age is this kind of a uh, uh, liberty, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a libertarian it's a libertarian universe where man is the master of technology and he's going to go out into the universe. This starts to change in the 1960s and 70s. And this period is what we call the, the new wave period. So many authors from the pre, but, but many authors from the previous golden age, they not only make the transition to the new wave era, but they're also instrumental parts of it. So Isaac Asimov, he's an example. He continues to write. He writes for like 40 years. Um, we also see sort of a turning away from this hard science and scientific accuracy of the previous era. And uh, the new wave is best described as um, having a more modernist interpretive uh, flavor, um, which is of course, influenced by uh, the growing political turmoil and social trends such as like the drug culture, sexual liberation, women's liberation, the environmental movement of the 1960s. Um, and this new wave of science fiction is, it, 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 it harkens back to the soft science fiction of the, the 1920s. So it's more the New Wave's inventors, they, they reject the individualism of the classic era, the individualism, the, the linear exposition, the happy endings, the scientific rigor. They reject this for more of a, an introspective science fiction, a science fiction which wants to study the people within the situations and how they react to them as opposed to, so it's, it's, about the, it's about more about character development than it is about plot development. And Frank Herbert's got this in spades because the plot of God Emperor of Dune is, it's almost, you almost don't have to really know about the plot of God Emperor of Dune because God Emperor of Dune is very much a treatise of just philosophy and ideas um, of Frank Herbert. So now we're gonna look at, uh, Boss, before I go on, does anyone have any questions? Um, are you going to tell us a little bit about your background? Oh, have I not done that? Sorry. Okay, so Liesl Westfall, um, my background. Um, I have a degree in archaeology and anthropology and a certificate in First Nation studies. Um, uh, I love archaeology, I love anthropology, I worked in it for a little bit couldn't really make much of a go at it. So I transferred my skills over into like digit like museums and digitization, which then I had the opportunity to work in um, the corporate world doing digitization. This was about, I'm aging myself now, uh, about 21 years ago. Um, I've also worked for, um, I have done some academic projects um, some of my research that I did back when I was doing my degree, um, I was able to develop that with a former supervisor. And so I've published on paleoethnobotany in an archeological, in an archeological context. Um, 
I've also worked in the corporate world as a systems analyst. It's like an enterprise content management systems analyst. And uh, currently for the last eight years, I have been working with, um, with kids, with kids who um, have different uh, learning needs and uh, kids who are on the autism spectrum. So that's what I've been doing for the last eight years. So that's my background. Yeah. Do you teach these children separated from other children or you teach them in an ordinary classroom? Separated from other children. So their needs are, are very strong. Their needs are strong. Yeah. Yeah. I have done um, homeschooling with kids. I've been hired as a private teacher, even though I don't have technically have a teacher qualification. Um, which I'm actually in the process of getting. So I'm in the process of getting a teacher qualification. Um, but I have endless amounts of patience for children and animals and I'm a good communicator. So this is, a, this is how I found myself after eight years. And it's all word of mouth. It's word of mouth between parents. What do you prepare these children for? Like, obviously, they're not going to go into ordinary work. They're not going to serve coffee at McDonald's. What are you preparing them for? I'm preparing them. I would say the best thing that I am preparing them for um, is a lifetime of uh, as best emotional regulation as possible so that they can be happy and that they can, um, even when they're adults, right? And they, you know, and they, they might be living in a situation where they might be living with family or in a group home or on their own, that, that they have some, that they have some sense of normalcy. I don't work with really, really tough kids because I don't have the education for that. I work with kids that that have um, you know that have uh, that have learning disabilities, kids that have been um, like I said, like in the homeschool situation, kids kids that whose parents have taken them out of school because the school environment wasn't working for them, and the two kids that I did work with um, who who were taken out of school and homeschooled after the year with me, they went back into school. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, and I'm really proud of that. My, my one, my, my, my 12 year old, she's, I haven't worked with her for a while, but so she's probably about 14 now. Um, she, three years of lots and lots of work and she is an absolute joy to be with now. She's wonderful. And she texts me, which is awesome. So yes, it is. yeah. Any, anyone else have any more questions about the history of science fiction? Nope. Where would you put a series of books um, by, um, oh, it's about the Discworld. Oh, Gary Niven's Discworld. That's a very- No, that's not his name. Not Larry Niven? She's no. thinking Terry Pratchett. Ter Terry Pratchett, thank you. Oh, yes. Pratchett. Yeah. Not right. Ringworld, Discworld. <laughs> That, yeah, thank you. Um, I believe that was published in the 1970s. 
Yes, I, I believe it was. Yeah, so that would go into the new wave era. That would go into the new because wave. that is my go-to place when I wanted science fiction. Yeah. Because I think he took on all of the beliefs that people had and sort of tore them apart. Like the very fact that there was a disc world, he was aiming at the flat earthers, right? Right. The difference is on the disc world, there was an edge and people could fall off and they did. Right. And, uh, and then he took on one of my favorites which was called Small Gods. And his story was that no one, no spirit could be a god if no one believed in it. And there was a young man believed in a turtle, but his belief went back and forth. And every time he lost his belief, the turtle would disappear. Ah, and well, this is very much a new wave kind of story because it, it, it interrogates this idea of, uh, collective consensus about the nature of reality, right? It's a very, it's a very modernist sort of postmodernist idea where we all have to agree that this thing exists or it doesn't actually exist. So I would place that in the new wave in the air of a new. I, I think he probably got that from Neil Gaiman because that's Pratchett and Gaiman are, are great friends. Yes. And, and, and Gaiman was the one who kind of introduced that I think in, in the late 80s and early 90s in the Sandman series, the idea that, that reality depends fundamentally on belief. Correct. And so you have uh, yeah. these sort of ancient godlike figures that manage belief, but belief just comes from people. Yeah. Manifest, they're manifestations of belief. Yeah. Of the things that are believed. Have you read American Gods by Neil Gaiman? Yeah, yeah, that's... that's but that's part of it. That's a later elaboration of, yeah. of, of, his, of his general idea, but he actually started this in the Sandman comics. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, they're comics. Are they comics? Yeah, Sandman was a, was a DC Vertigo series from 89 okay. onward, 89 to, I'm not sure exactly when it stopped. Yeah. Um, um, but anyways. I don't really know a lot about comics. Um, what I have learned about comics, I've kind of absorbed through osmosis from like ex-boyfriends. I didn't really grow up reading comics. Um, I think the, I love comic covers. Um, uh, I have actually like a comic cover artist. I have some of his art up on my wall, um, but I haven't read a lot of comics myself. I'm just too busy reading Doom. <laughs> okay, so no, we're gonna talk about that. Sorry, sorry, I cut you off, go ahead. No, no, that's fair. I mean, the thing is, I didn't read Sandman until much later. Uh, because by the time it started coming out, I was sort of too old to read comic books and then only belatedly realized that it was an important piece of fiction. Right, right. That Maybe you know, from an important, know. someone who's becoming an important fiction author. Yes, yeah. Um, in terms of novels, um, which, which he then became. Was he the artist on those two or was he just the writer? He's the writer. The artist was, um, well, the cover artist was Dave McKeon and the, uh, Mike Dringenberg, I think, was the, the main artist for the body of the comics. Okay. I haven't heard of them. Yeah. I've got a couple of Ashley Woods 
up on my walls. No did, they, did the covers for like Sandman and uh, some of the Dark Knight series. Well, okay. Well, see, see, Sandman is what I'm talking about here. Oh, or am I? I'm, so. I'm wrong. No, no. He did the cover for the the Dark Knight series. He did okay, some that's covers for Dark Knight. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any more questions? I thought that was Frank Miller. Would have Dark done Knight? Those. Maybe not the covers, maybe yeah. the content, the Dark Knight was Frank, right. was Frank Miller. Maybe yeah. someone else did the covers. Yeah, this, yeah. Was, this was just the cover. This is just like the artist who does the cover art because cover art tends to involve, like it involves different um, mediums of art. So there's a lot of yeah. painting and stuff in cover art, which is kind of my wheelhouse. Okay. Yeah. So I have um, a, a question about Dune. Yeah. Is there any place that I can get a definition of all these terms? Do you have the do you have do you have the book? I have the first uh, I have the first three, yes. Okay. Um in, in, the, in the back of the book, there should be, I don't know what what copy you have the book. In the back it's of the book. It's on e it's on my e-reader. Oh, okay. Um <laughs> I know I would enjoy it a whole lot more if I didn't have to keep going back to what the names are. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, so in the book, there's the appendix. So the appendix covers the ecology of Dune and mm -hmm. it also covers, so it covers, uh, there's the selected excerpts from the Noble House. There's Bene Gesserit. No. Well, when I first started reading the book, I started writing all these words down. Right. Okay. So there's the Encyclopedia of Doom. That's oh. actually a pretty. That's a, a. It's a. It's not written directly by Frank Herbert. No. Um, so it is like it. It is a, a fan generated um, uh, book, but it's extremely detailed. Um, now, some of it. Some of it is uh, uh, springs from the imagination of the authors and not, and not Mr. Herbert. Um, but a lot of it actually is just, just discusses, um, just gives you explanations of the various things within the book. Well, you, can even, you can always email me too, because. There is a glossary of Dune terminology on Wikipedia. Oh, perfect. Oh, thank you. Perfect. There you go. Thank you. Glossary of Dune, Wikipedia. <laughs> of Dune. Thank you. All right. It's all in there. I will say one of the things about Wikipedia is that um, when it comes to the, when it comes to Dune, uh, if, if, if you want to look in like themes and stuff like that, it's very first trilogy centric. So talking about God Emperor or Heretics or Chapter House, uh, they don't really, it, it's, it, it's not really as fully developed for, which, which makes sense because uh, a, a lot of the Apocrypha, the, 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 uh, the autobiographical stuff, um, the analytical stuff uh, that they use the trilogy, the first three books as the basis for their analysis. Um, yeah, any more questions? I put, I put the um, URL for the book reader for the Dune Encyclopedia PDF up there too. Awesome, thank you. Yeah. And, we, and 
I believe someone told me we're getting a copy of Jodorowsky's Dune. Oh, someone... oh, that'd be nice if Stuart comes up with it, sure. Yeah, yeah, I haven't say seen that it. Again. Say those words again. Jodorowsky, he was a, um, he was a film director. He was an avant-garde film director in the 1970s. Oh, okay. Yeah, who was the first one to attempt to make Dune. It was never made. There is, however, an, a, um, a film called Jodorowsky's Dune about this attempt to make Dune. And it's very, very interesting. It's really interesting. But I'll talk about that a little bit like later on. So, so um, what informed, sorry, sorry, Margaret. If anyone is interested, the Dune books are, are audio books on um, YouTube. Oh. So I listened to the first book on YouTube. Yep. And then I started reading. Okay. That's good. There's also on YouTube, I will, I'm going to be doing some uh, housekeeping tomorrow where I'll put up some of the supplementary reading and links because there's a, not only are there um, the audiobooks of the actual text of the actual Dune books text, there's also some, some pretty good uh, summaries, even though I will be doing summaries within the course content, within this course's content. If you kind of want to get a, a jump on them to understand before going, before I go into it, um, there are some good, they're like, they're about an hour, they're about an hour long, um, but you know, they're not 400 pages. So, <laughs> so if, if you, to avoid confusion, they might, you might, you might find that of interest to yourselves. So I'll put those, when I do my housekeeping tomorrow, when I have all the links and stuff, I'll put links onto that for, to YouTube. Just cause I can make it a bit easier. So our next thing. So what informs Dune? Um, like what, what interests of Frank Herbert, uh, it, it, you know, informed the writing. So Frank Herbert was, a bit, he was more of an autodidact than he was an academic. Um, he had what he considered a shotgun blast of interests, including history, psychology, ecology, comparative mythology, and semantics and language. Uh, one of uh, the biggest influences is uh, Carl Jung. And Carl Jung and his archetypes. Mm -hmm. So the strongest influence on Herbert was the work of Carl Jung. He's a Swiss psychiatrist. Do, I guess, do you guys know who Carl Jung is? Oh, yes. Yeah. Disciple of Freud. He was, yes, he was a disciple of Freud, but, but they, in the end, he became, they became mortal enemies. Yes, absolutely mortal enemies. Mortal enemies because they had vastly different ideas of psychoanalysis or, or psychiatry. And biology becomes uh, that. <laughs> And what? And biology, really. <laughs> that too, that too. But at the time, you know, like in the, when they were writing, like the 1920s and 30s and 40s, um, a lot of people did lots of different things, right? There wasn't as much specialization. Um, mm -hmm. So Carl Jung, he, he rejected. He rejected Freud's personal focus on the individual. He rejected the concept of tabula rasa, that held that humans were born as blank slates upon which culture and conditioning can be written. Um, 
he came up with these 12 primary archetypes that he defined as universal and archaic. They're symbols and images that derive from our collective unconscious. Uh, these archetypes seek actualization within the context of an individual's environment, but nonetheless, they retain similarities that persist throughout different cultures and historical periods. They are the knowledge derived from the sum of human history, which, 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 which Jung argued uh, pre-configures conscious behavior. Now, I have my issues with Carl Jung, but Frank didn't, Frank loved him. So this is a course on Frank, not on me. So we'll, we'll talk about the 12 primary archetypes and um, I will put this up in the, in the Google group as well. Um, because as we go through the novels, you'll be able to see who some of these, who, which characters embody these 12 primary archetypes. So we have the sage, the sage is the wise man. Do you, do you guys know about the 12? Do I have to go through this? Do you guys know about this? You probably should go through it. Okay. So we have the sage. The sage is the wise man or woman. They're the thinker seeker. They're analytical. They're obsessed with facts. There's the innocent or the idealist. They're optimistic. They're always searching for happiness. They see the good in everything and they tend to be people pleasers. Number three is the explorer. They're the traveler, the adventurer. They're open to novelty. However, they tend to be perfectionists, then they're not easily satisfied. Four is the ruler. Keep this in mind. The ruler is the classic stable leader. They believe they have a natural right to be leader. Yet, however, in their desire to impose their own version of order, they can easily become a tyrant. So that will come up later on. And there's the creator. The creator is the transformer. They're imaginative, they're a future thinker. But because of this, they can also be inconsistent, maybe a little bit fickle. Then there comes the caregiver. And the caregiver is the maternal protector. Sometimes they take this function to the extreme and they become a martyr. Next, we have the magician. The magician is the great revolutionary. They regenerate and renew. They're also kind of a liminal character so they can saddle the worlds between the sacred and the profane. Then we have the hero. This is another one. This goes with the leader to pay attention to. The axis of the hero's life is power. They're ambitious, they're charismatic, and they fight for power or for honor which really honor status, is, it's a powerful status. It's kind of the same thing. Then we have the rebel. The rebel is the transgressor. They're provocative. They don't like to be controlled or influenced, but which can, this can sometimes manifest itself in self-destructive behaviors. 10 is the lover. So these are the sensitive folks. They love love, they value beauty, in all aspects of earth of, of, of life's earthly pleasures, but this can swing in towards sort of an extreme uh, libertinism. Then we have the jester. Number 11 is the jester. The jester is primarily concerned with the humor in life and they love to make people laugh. 
but they can also be greedy and lazy. And then our final one is the orphan. The orphan is the perpetual victim. They're usually rather cynical and they can often be manipulative. So those were Jung's 12 archetypes and they heavily inform the next person who was uh, a big influence on, on Dune, on the narrative and the character structure of Dune. And that is uh, Joseph Campbell and his comparative mythologies and religions. Does anyone know who Joseph Campbell is? Nope. Again, I've just heard of him. I haven't studied him. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Well, Joseph Campbell was, uh, he was a professor, he's a professor of literature who worked uh, in comparative mythology and comparative religion. Uh, Campbell, much like, like, like Young, held that all humanity was psychically linked uh, through this sort of collective unconsciousness. And this collectivism uh, was expressed through culture, was expressed culturally through mythology. So Campbell, much like Young, believed in essential archetypes and he dedicated his life's work to researching these cross-cultural similarities. And he expressed them in concepts such as the monomyth or the hero's journey. So remember the hero from Young? Here we see the story of the hero. So the hero's journey, uh, so Campbell has broken down the hero's journey into seven stages or what he calls mythemes. And these 17 stages, not seven, sorry, 17. These 17 stages can then be broken down further into three distinct, three distinct sections. I need a drink of water. We have departure and separation, initiation, and then finally return. And I will also, uh, I'll put up the list of the 12 archetypes, but I'll also put up a list of the 17 stages, these 17 myth themes as well. I don't wanna to spend too much time going through them because um, because they can be generally um, considered in, in these three different sections, one of departure, initiation, and then return. So departure, these are the initial stages of the journey. This is where our hero who's living in a mundane world is moved or called to action to go outside of this world. And they often do this with the help of a mentor or a wise person. So there's another archetype that comes into this story. Uh, the initiation uh, phase of the stages, these are the inter intermediary stages of the journey. Uh, so this is where the hero travels from his or hers mundane normal existence to a special world, a different world. It can be, it can be a magical world, it can be another planet, it can be the center of the earth. It's just, it's, it's not their normal environment. And it's here where they experience crisis and they must undergo an ordeal or overcome an obstacle or enemy. And then the final stage is the return. The final act of return involves the hero having bested a supernatural or otherworldly foe or task. He or she returns to their previous existence in the mundane world, having been transformed by their ordeal. 
And through this, they are granted special knowledge or spiritual power over both of these worlds. Now, there's been a lot of crit there's been a lot of criticism that has been aimed at Campbell's theory. Um, I, I, I myself am one of those critics. Uh, <laughs> um, but we have to keep in mind that that Campbell was writing uh, that Campbell was heavily informed by anthropology, and he was writing at a time that anthropology was obsessed with a concept called structuralism. So the best way I can define that without getting into some academic yada, 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 is um, uh, a place for everything and everything in its place. So it, looks, it wants to look at the structure and it wants everything to fit into that structure perfectly. Um, unfortunately, culture doesn't do that. Culture doesn't fit into structure perfectly. Culture is also not universal. I mean, we can, we can try to look for universal themes, but we're always gonna have the eyes of our own culture. So while I understand the, the ideal pursuit of looking for universals, because it really is an exercise in shared humanity, um, it tends to be a bit, um, tends to suffer a bit from essentialism and one of Campbell's problems, if you read his books, is that he's, he suffers a bit from selection bias. So he, he has this idea, right? He has these, this, this, like, for an example, he has like this, this monomyth where he has looked at like Greek tragedies and, uh, you know, different uh, like uh, anthropological ethnographic myths that were written down by ethnographers about uh, North American indigenous tribes. And what 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 works for his theory he picks out and he puts it in as the, that is an example of my theory and so that backs up my theory anything that doesn't fit into his theory he just just very just he just ignores it which was actually very very common for in anthropology at the time because if it didn't fit they didn't look at it whereas in later on in the postmodern era of anthropology if it didn't fit that's what we want to look at, right? Um, Frank Herbert was also, he was also into language and we'll see, we'll see this throughout the book, um, throughout, throughout the six books, um, language in, in, in written format, both of the novel itself and of the, the, the do, uh, of documents within the story that he relies upon to draw, to, 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 to build the world of Dune and also to push the story forward. So the language in there, uh, the language choice, um, he specifically chooses, like, when he, he, he chooses Arabic to be the language of, of the Fremen and he very makes it, he makes a very, he makes a very conscious decision to choose the oral version of the language because it's his belief that it's the oral version of language that, that survives these long, huge periods of time. Not written versions of language, but the oral versions, which I tend to agree with. So he was a huge fanatic of uh, Alfred Korzewski, 
and general semantics. Now, general semantics, how would I describe this? I don't know that much about it because when I came on to the academic scene, general semantics was kind of a joke. It, it was something that no one talked about, so I didn't do too much research on it. Let's just say, how would I describe it as, uh, describe it as like, I would describe uh, Korzebski as the Campbell of language. So it was, it, it had, it was about these universal things in language, which of course, you know, suffers from selection bias and essentialism as well. Um, so any questions about the influ who influenced Herbert? Well, I, I am very big on dreams, mm. very big on dreams. And one of the things I found about Carl Jung was that he said, if your dreams are not archetypal symbols, they don't matter. That's interesting. Well, selection and, bias right there. And so if you dream about a snake, it matters because snakes are everywhere. Right. If you dream about dogs, they're everywhere. Yeah. But if you dream about just have a general dream about people having a chat, know that you don't have to pay attention to that. You have to pay attention to the archetypal symbols and what they're trying to tell you. Okay. And it doesn't oh. work for me because I pay a lot of attention to my dreams. Okay. And Have you read an, any of Freud's interpretation? Oh, of yes. Yes, okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, not a lot, but yeah, I have. Have you read the original text? Which text? The original Freud text? The interpretation of dreams? No, I haven't. Just hold on. Um, there it is, the interpretation of dreams. And I'll tell you one thing about this is that there's, there's not a lot of whole, like there's not a lot, like a thematic narrative you know, when people talk about Freud, I think a lot of Freudian um, theory was actually developed post-Freud. Because this is really just an kind of an ethnography of people's dreams. Mm -hmm. He just sits down and writes about people's dreams. There's not a lot of, there's not a whole lot of analyses. And there's not, not a whole lot of, of themes either. So, yeah, that's Freud. <laughs> One time I went to a dream interpreter, I threw my money at her. <laughs> I was having nightmares night after night about Nazis. About what? Like Nazis. And oh. he said I. And I thought, why would, you know, a little Irish Roman Catholic who's never had to deal with this suddenly start having dreams? And it was always Nazi soldiers. There were no women, there were no it was Nazi soldiers. So I went to one lady to have it interpreted because I was getting upset. And yeah. she said, no, I don't think I will. So then I went to another lady and I paid her <clears throat> $250. Oh. You know what she told me? Oh. 
What did she tell you? That I was a victim of the Holocaust. That I in had a former born. life. And, and I had yeah because I was born in 1942, so I was a victim of the Holocaust. And I said to her, "Why am I dreaming about Nazis if I'm one of the victims? For one thing. For another thing, I don't believe in reincarnation." Yeah. And then I just threw my $250 at her and walked out. I was very upset because I needed to have these dreams interpreted. Have you found peace? Hmm? Have, have you found peace since then with these it's, dreams? It was a quite a long time ago. But now I find if I start having dreams about Nazis two or three days in a row, it's telling me something. That something needs to be looked at. Right. I yeah. tend to see dream interpretation as like not sort of a literal where there's like a script. I tend to see it as like, okay, you're having crazy dreams. Maybe you need to go to bed early or, you know, you know I see them more functionally. Like, yeah. But have a look at what's going on around you at that particular moment. Right. Like that's what I do. If I have more than one dream in a week about Nazis, I always look around to see what's really bothering me. Right. That's sort of the, the, the red flag for you. Yeah, it is for me. But anyway, it's the only time I've ever thrown money at anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, you threw money at me. <laughs> oh, I, was very, I was very upset because I needed these dreams to be interpreted. Absolutely. I can, I can imagine like lack of sleep and then just that kind of stuff stays with you night after, especially night after night. You know, that, yeah, would, that would be a terrible experience. Yeah. Terrible experience. Okay, so any more questions, folks? Okay, so for the last 10 minutes, we're gonna do a, I'm gonna do a quick overview of the themes in Dune. And I'm not gonna expand too much on them because I kind of wanna talk about them while I'm doing the synopsis of Dune. But so the themes that we're looking at, um, so we see, okay, so a theme, obvious theme, power and violence. Another one, free will and fate. Uh, number three, religion. The religion is a theme that infuses and directs the entire series from the first book all the way up until the last book. And it has many permutations. Uh, number four, is uh, eugenics and advancements in human uh, cognitive and physical abilities. That's actually something that uh, like, not only am I gonna talk about that in terms of like the themes as, as, as a thematic quality that runs through the entire book. In fact, it's the basis, it's one of the bases for the books. Um, I'm also gonna talk about that uh, in the last lecture um, when I talk about what can we learn from Dune that, that we can apply to our understanding of the world today? So I'll talk about eugenics and that kind of stuff. Uh, that's June 17th. Um, and of course, one of the massive major themes is ecology, which is uh, the, the environment and human culture. <clears throat> So this is the simple definition, is the study of the relationships between living organisms, including humans and their physical environment. Uh, another theme is, uh, and this goes back to, this goes back to uh, both uh, Jung and, and, uh, and Campbell, is uh, Dune 
and the messianic hero trap. So in 1981, Frank Herbert said, I conceived of a long novel. The whole trilogy is one book about the messianic convulsions that periodically overtake us. And it's this messy, this idea of the Messiah, of the superhuman, of, of, a, of a natural leader for, for you to put your trust and, and for you to put your power into. Uh, this is one of the, this, is, this is, is the main enduring theme that goes throughout the book. Uh, So somebody had to say about that again. Don't give over all of your critical faculties to people in power, no matter how admirable those people may appear. So that's the most powerful and enduring theme in Doom. Is that the heroes who are the stock and trade, not only of science fiction, but of non-science fiction, popular literature and literature, and also other cultural storytelling formats like television, this can lead us into dangerous ways of thinking. While we need <laughs> models, while we need the models that heroes provide, our faith in them can undercut our faith in ourselves and eat away at the self-reliance that we need to cope with the real world. So another, and then the final theme is uh, the limits of technology and the people who build them. <coughs> So technology and human development, because in many in, in many ways, I think Frank Herbert had a he had a he had a fundamental distrust of the Western American obsession with technological advances. Even though he did get into computers and stuff like that, he he he, he didn't become he wasn't very much a techie. Um, Now, the fundamental distrust that he had in these technological advances was not because he distrusted, and this is where like the rub is, where he distrusted the technology in and of itself, but because he saw technologies as inherently parts of systems, dreamt up, designed, and implemented by humans. And where you have a system, you inevitably have a means to structure power. Herbert held it as self-evident that power structures, and this is a quote from him that I have, that struck me when I was in my 20s and has kept with me these 20 plus years afterwards, <laughs> that power structures tend to attract people who want power for the sake of power. And that a significant portion of such people are sufficiently imbalanced that they could be called insane. Talking about Donald Trump, are we? Well, you know, Frank, he's, he's, he's very clear. He's very, very clear in the book, in both his interviews and through the voice of Leto II in God Emperor of Dune, that uh, absolute power does not corrupt absolutely. Absolute power just attracts the corruptible. And that he's is an optimist. <laughs> so he's an optimist. He's a... <laughs> I actually think he is because one of the, one of like the last theme that I'm going to talk about is um, the theme of love. Mm 
he is an optimist because if there's one thing that is is the, it is is a disruptor through all these these narratives through like the narrative of Paul the narrative you know that that Paul goes through this hero's journey um, the the narrative of uh, of, of Leto the first with his wife, the narrative of the God Emperor and his journey through his 3,500 years of existence is that no matter how much they can plan for the future, usually what kind of throws them for a loop and is love. And so that is another theme that Frank Herbert, a theme that dominates throughout the entire book. Um, yeah. Um, another theme is precognition and prescience, and that's a huge one. And we'll, but we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that after the first book, because uh, seven o'clock. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. What do you want and, us to read for next session? Um, you actually don't have to read anything. If you want to review Dune, because for next session, I'm going to just be doing a, um, uh, I'm gonna talk about the priors of the Dune universe. So like, what is this universe that we're going into? I'm gonna you know, talk about the characters, the great houses, the minor houses, you know, all these, the, the, the setting, the, the, the setting for the novel. And then I'm gonna do a synopsis of the novel. And then, and then we're gonna talk about some of the themes that I mentioned today. We're gonna to talk about how they, um, how they come to be within the novel. So you would like us to have finished the first novel? You can, you can, you know, you don't have to have finished it, but I'll do my best. Hell. And I will put up those links. I'm going to do housekeeping tomorrow. I will put up those links so that, you know, if, if, if you don't finish the, if you don't finish the book and you know, you don't have to finish the book because I'm actually doing a synopsis of it. Good. Yeah. Um, they don't have to finish the book. I mean, but please do, by all means, finish the book, but it's 400 pages and it's very, very dense. Yes. I will say that after rereading all six books that the original Dune and God Emperor of Dune are probably the two most dense books that, that of the series. And God Emperor of Dune is dense in terms of its philosophy while Dune is dense in both action and philosophy. So it's just a dense book. Mm -hmm. Well, I apologize. I seem to have done all the talking tonight. That's, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. You know what? We're doing pretty good. We've I've got, I've got three of you guys here and I think we've done pretty good. And considering this is the first time I've, you know, stood in front of a crowd and talked and, 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 and taught anything for 10 years, <laughs> I think we've done a, I think we've done pretty good. As long as we don't have a written exam. No. If there's one thing that Frank Herbert like does does not engender is a written exam. Good. <laughs> he is not a linear pragmatic thinker. That was one of the toughest things I think for me was teasing out all these different various threads of his themes and stuff because they're so interwoven, they are like a fabric. So like you literally have to pick them apart, you know? That takes a long time. 
So no, there will be no tests. Does Stuart, does Stuart do tests? I'll see everybody next time. Yeah, okay. Seven o'clock. Okay. Great, thanks guys. Thank you.